pressing in my spirit is what I just talked about, the need for us to be a people of the book. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like a prophet. and I'm going to tell you what's coming in the future. I don't know. But I do know that our culture has shifted. The church is no longer favored in our culture. The church is not only not favored in our culture, the church is largely disdained in our culture. And I believe that it's only going to get worse and at times will be difficult. From what I know from, from God's word, the only way that we stand in those times is to have a lives that are built upon God's word. That's what Jesus said Sermon on the Mount and what he said in the Gospel of Luke. We'll look at the Gospel of Luke passage later on. But Jesus said that the storms come, the winds blow, the waves beat, but the house that's founded upon the word will stand. And the one that is not founded upon the word, it's going to fall down. So if we're going to survive what, whatever is coming, whatever difficulties will come into our lives, whether the world turns bad on the church or whether just difficulties come, we're going to have to be a people of the book. We're going to have to be a people who are sure that our faith comes from what is revealed about who God is and what God's like, who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. But because with things becoming difficult, what Granny taught us isn't going to sustain us any longer if it's not true. What culture says won't give us the strength if it's not true. What the talking heads on TV teach isn't going to sustain us if it's not true. And we must be sure our belief system is based not upon our feelings of what's right. Not upon what we've been taught is right. Not upon what culture says is right, but by what is right. And the reason that there's difficulty for us to do this is because we have an enemy. We have an enemy who hates us. And he wants above all else to destroy our lives. He wants to destroy who we are. He wants to destroy our souls. He wants to destroy everything about us. And if he can't destroy us, then he'll seek to destroy our marriages. And if he can't destroy our marriages, then he'll do what he can to destroy our children. Or our grandchildren. He wants to destroy our church. But if he can't destroy our church. Then what he'll do is he'll work to destroy our love for God's church. And our faithfulness to God's church. But if he can't destroy our love and our faithfulness for God's church. Then he'll work to destroy our children and our grandchildren's love. And their faithfulness to the church. But his overall goal. in everything he does. Is to bring destruction into our lives in one form or another. Now, this isn't my idea. This is what God's Word teaches. God's Word teaches us quite a bit about Satan. For instance, Matthew 4.1, Satan is a tempter who dared to tempt Jesus to sin. Can you imagine the audacity of the one who would dare to tempt the Son of God Himself? If He will dare to tempt Jesus, my gracious, what will he dare to do to us? Jesus in John 8, 44 said, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus said, Satan is a thief that comes to steal, kill and destroy in John 10 and 10. Peter tells us. Satan is our enemy who roams about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, devour, that is a vivid word picture. If you've ever watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, you know what it looks like for a lion to devour an antelope. That is the picture, that is what Satan would do to us, to our children, and to our grandchildren. Revelation 12, 9, we're told Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. First John tells us the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Much more could be said about what God's word teaches us about Satan and his desires for humanity. But that small sampling is enough to show us it's serious. It's enough to show us that he is active. And as we look at our culture around us, clearly he is having success in doing the things that he does. But we wonder, how does he do this? I mean, he doesn't usually physically attack people. 
He doesn't usually physically assault people. So how does he deceive and destroy people? God's word warns us in Ephesians 6 and 11 about the wiles or the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2 and 11, we're told not to be ignorant of his devices or designs or plans. The overall idea in these passages, Satan uses deceitful methods and strategies in his attempt to destroy human beings. He employs these strategies on believers and unbelievers alike. He employs these strategies on believers to keep them from doing what God wants them to do. To keep them from seeking God's will and doing God's will in their life. He does this. He uses his schemes and his strategies on unbelievers to keep them blinded to the truth of the gospel and to deceive them to believing that their way is better than God's way. Ultimately, he just wants us to believe a lie instead of the truth. Because he knows that if people believe a lie, his lie as the father of lies instead of God's truth, he will be able to bring the destruction into their lives he wants to bring. Well, what are his tricks and what are his strategies? What are the mind games he tries to play with us? Well, there are many, but there is one trick in particular he uses most often. It is the most successful trick he has. It is something he has used since the very beginning. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, page 4. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Genesis 3, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will certainly not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise. She took some of the fruit and ate She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. We'll stop there. Title of the message, Satan Attacks God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. Come today, Lord, with a desire to just meet with you. Desire for your word to speak, to challenge us, and to change us. Father, we've not come out on a cold day just to check a box and to move on. We love you, we long for you, and we want to be better able to do your will. We want to be a people who are devoted to you, and that requires us to be a people of the book, O oh God. So today I pray that you would open our eyes to Satan's schemes and attacking your word. I pray that we would see where maybe we have bought into some of his lies as it pertains to your word. And we would learn what we need to do to turn from it. Father, I don't know what's coming. But I know that hardship and trials and difficulties come into all of our lives. And Jesus said that it is only the life based upon the word, built upon the word, that's going to stand. So whether the world gets hard or whether life just gets hard, we'll still not be able to stand if we're not built upon your word and we want to stand. Father, we want to be able to stand in days of temptations and trials we want to be able to stand in days of spiritual battles where the enemy attacks we want to be able to stand when culture turns bad against us and we want to be able to stand just when life is hard so let us be a people of the book who are careful to be sure that we build our lives upon your word careful to be sure that what we believe comes from your word that we would test all things Test it by your word and let your word be the standard for it all. 
Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Have your way. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is a familiar story for most of us. The story tells us why there is sin and evil in the world. This story is the point in history where everything sort of went bad. This is the point where we first are introduced to Satan and we get a glimpse of his tricks and strategies. And here we see his first, strongest, and most consistent strategy to deceive and destroy humanity. In the Garden of Eden, Satan began his attacks by attacking God's Word. So what we see in this is that Satan attacks God's Word to lead us away from the God of the Word. Satan attacks the Word of God to lead us away from the God of the Word. This is the key thing. And we'll talk about this more in weeks to come. But if Satan can turn us away from God's Word, he will turn us away from God. Over and over again, it is made clear that our commitment to God is often and in many ways built upon our commitment to God's word. When we when we call this God's word, it's not just a cool saying. It it really is the very words of God that that he wants us to know. And so to, to disbelieve or to disobey any part of God's word is to disobey or disbelieve the God of the word. So if Satan can turn us away from the word of God, he will for sure turn us away from the God of the word. So how does he attack God's word in an effort to lead us away from the God of the word? Well, first, Satan casts doubt on God's word. The very... First words out of Satan's mouth are intended to cast doubt. Has God really said? Are you sure? That's really the word of God. Are you sure God has really spoken? Are you sure? Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, look at chapter 2 and verse 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree in the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for on the day you eat of it you will certainly die. So yes, God had really said they shall not eat of it. Adam and Eve knew God had said they really they were not supposed to eat of it. But Satan asks the question not to not to deepen their faith. He doesn't ask the question to get them to to check down deep to find out what they really believe. He is he is doing it to undermine their confidence in God's word. Satan knows that if they doubt the word of God, they will doubt the God of the word. If they doubt the word of God, they will disobey the God of the word. And by disobeying the God of the word. Satan could bring destruction and death into their lives. Well, this attack works so well, Satan has continually used it since. There are all sorts of attacks in our day seeking to cast doubt on God's word. Has God really said sex outside of marriage is always wrong? Has God really said Jesus is the only way of salvation? Has God really said all people are naturally sinful, depraved and separated from God? Has God really said marriage is only between a man and a woman? Has God really said the church is important to our spiritual lives? Has God really said we must remain faithful to Jesus to the end? Has God really said? Now, in each of these instances, God has really said. And what's especially disturbing to me, at least, about these attacks on God's word is that many times they come from within the church. Some of the greatest attacks on the reliability of God's word don't come from atheists and agnostics and devil worshipers. They come from people who profess faith in Jesus. They come from people who teach at seminaries and pastor churches 
people who have Dr. So-and-so in front of their name. There are several books by so-called Christians who ask these sort of questions. Has God really said? Now, don't get me wrong here. I think it's good to ask questions. Has God really said? We need to know, has God really said that? It's not enough to say, well, the preacher said God really said that. It's not enough to say, Granny taught me that God really said that. None of that is enough. We, we must know, has God really said those things? So it's good to ask them and to dig into the Word and find the answer. But that's not what those books are doing. Those books are asking the question. And then they're undermining and undercutting the authority of God's Word over and over again. They're just repeating the very first words the enemy of our souls said. As God really said. We should be leery of anyone or anything seeking to cast doubt on God's word. Be sure anyone casting doubt on God's word says it with the hiss of the serpent without fail. Satan casts doubt on God's word because he knows if we doubt the word of God, we will not obey the God of the word and he will then be able to bring death and destruction into our lives. Satan's attacks on God's word are intended to lead us away from the God of the word. Secondly, Satan contradicts God's word. Has God really said the woman gives the answer? Yes, God did say that. In fact, God said, if you eat it or touch it, we'll talk about that in a minute, you'll die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. Now he's becoming even bolder. He's going beyond just questioning. Casting doubt to openly contradicting God's word. You're not going to die if you eat the tree God has commanded you not to eat. Sure, God said you would die, but that's not really what's going to happen. Satan basically told them not to worry what God said because God was wrong. None of that is, is going to happen. Everything is going to be okay. You ignore what you know God said. And you do what you want to do. And it's all going to work out. In the end. And again we see this so often in our day. And sadly it often comes from within the church. There are few. At least within the church who would be so bold. As to say God was wrong or something in God's word wasn't true. Instead, they seek to contradict God's word in a way that makes us feel as though it must be okay. We hear things like, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart and, and everything will be fine. Your heart will never lead you astray. It's not like the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, like Jeremiah 17, 9 says. It's not like there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end of that way is destruction, like Proverbs 14 and 12 says. No, no, just follow your heart. Following your heart is one of the surest ways to contradict God's word while feeling morally okay, feeling you are doing the right thing. Or, or this one's popular. Love is the most important thing. Now this one's used in a couple of ways. And it sounds right on many different levels. One way we hear it is if two people love each other. Then whatever they do has to be okay. So because love could never be wrong. Now to fully embrace this idea we have to ignore the fact. That God's word tells us in 1 John 2, 15 and 17. That there is a kind of love God hates. And we have to ignore the fact that God's word is clear that love can be expressed in sinful ways. When we ignore truth from God's word to focus on love, we, we will contradict God's word and we will feel it's OK to do so. 
Another way we hear about this is the importance of love is that we're told if we love someone, you just accept them as they are. And this idea, it means that that love means acceptance, total acceptance of a person and their lifestyle and their every choice. And there's a way in which that can seem right. However, this idea goes so far as to say if we love someone, we can't ever tell them that their actions or their lifestyle is wrong, even if it contradicts God's word. And, And maybe... Through the culture, maybe especially if it contradicts God's word. This would mean if we love people, we affirm and accept them in lifestyles of rebellion against God. To embrace this idea, we must ignore much of the truth of God's word. And ignoring the truth of God's word to focus on love will lead us to contradict God's word. Another way we often hear about contradicting God's word, Satan contradicts it, is God just wants you to be happy. God loves you. And he wants you to have your best life now. He just wants you to be happy. Now, there's some truth there. God does love us. And God does want what's best for us. But the resulting application that what this means is so long as we're happy, we're good, is Flawed. Because very often what makes us happy is something God's word expressly forbids. And at the same time, our happiness, as we tend to define it, is not even remotely God's highest priority for our lives. God's highest priority for our lives is our salvation and our sanctification. He wants us to be saved by Jesus and then become like Jesus. And the reality is to be saved by Jesus and to become like Jesus requires massive changes in our lives that at the moment may not make us happy. Focusing on our happiness at the exclusion of all other things, it will always lead us to contradict God's word. And a part of what Satan is teaching here is there are no consequences for sin. You can ignore God's word. You can rebel against God and and everything will be okay. And in many ways, those false ideas I just mentioned teach the same thing. So long as our motives are good. Love, happiness, following your heart. Then actions don't matter. There can be no negative consequences from God when we do when we do the wrong things so long as we have the right motives. And it's simply false. For an example of that, finding God's word where David went to get the ark after he became king, Saul had died. The ark had been gone from Israel for much of Saul's reign. David wanted to go get the ark and bring it back into Jerusalem where the people were so they could worship God as they were supposed to. Right motive. David goes and he gets the ark and he puts it on a new cart and he begins to take it. Right motive. They're rejoicing. They're jumping. They're happy. God is coming back to Jerusalem. He's going to be among the people again. And then the the ark stumbles or the, the cart stumbles and a man named Uzzah reaches out to touch it. And when he does, God kills him. Why did God kill him? They were doing the right thing to bring God's ark back into the place. They were doing it with the right motives. They loved God and they wanted him there. They did it in the wrong way. God's word had told them how the ark was to be carried. The new cart pulled by a cow was the way the heathen dealt with the ark. God's people were to put poles and carry it as Levites. And so they did the right thing. They did it with the right motives. And God still killed them because they didn't do it in the right way. Just because it feels good. Just because the motives seem right. If it's the wrong way according to God's word, the judgment of God is still there. And it is still coming. Satan contradicts the word of God because he knows if we believe a lie instead of the truth, we will not obey. We will not obey God. 
And he will bring death and destruction into our lives. Satan attacks the word of God to lead us astray from the God of the word. Thirdly, Satan convinces us God's word is a burden. Look at verse 5. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's other two attacks on God's word made the way for this final successful attack. He convinced them God was keeping them from something good. It wasn't that God had their best intentions and had their best interest at heart. It wasn't that God actually knew what was best because he was God and they just came into being a few weeks ago. No, no. God was keeping them from something that would make their lives better. God was keeping them from something that was good for food. It would taste good. God was keeping them from something that looked good. God was keeping them from something that would be good for them. It would make them wise. Hasn't Satan won a huge victory in this in our day? How many people in our day are convinced the commands of God's word are are stifling? How many people see God's word as a book of rules preventing us from having real joy and real pleasure in life? This has to be the most common view of God's word in our day. And I would venture many who profess to be born again children of God hold this same view. They don't see God's word as a source of joy and freedom. They don't see it as the way they come to know the God of their salvation and the Savior who died on the cross for their sins. They see it as oppressive. They see it as outdated. They see it as keeping them from something that they know has to be good. And so they convince themselves the part of God's word they don't like really isn't from God. And so they can ignore it and everything will be okay. I would go so far as to say this view is the strongest reason behind many, if not most, people rejecting God's word. It's not that they have done this deep scholarly study and have found all of these errors in God's word. It's not the biggest thing. It's not that... They have such massive intellects that they just can't take God's word at face value. That's really not the reason. They're doing something God's word said they're not supposed to do. And that becomes the reason God's word is wrong. I want to do this. And my pleasure is paramount. Therefore, God's word could not be true. There is no way a God, if there is a God, would care if I did this since it brings me such joy. My my desires could never be wrong. Therefore, God's word must be. If Satan can convince us God's word is a burden in our lives. He wins a huge victory because no one keeps on doing something that is a burden to them. Parents who see their children as a burden eventually abdicate their parental responsibilities. Students who see school as a burden eventually drop out. Spouses who see their marriage as a burden eventually find ways to get out of their marriage. Employees who see their jobs as a burden eventually take the first job offer that comes along that gets them out of the job. People who see church as a burden eventually quit coming. People who see God's word as a burden eventually quit reading it, they quit listening to it, and eventually they quit obeying it. Satan seeks to convince us God's word is a burden because he knows if we believe a lie instead of the truth, we will not obey God's word. And he'll be able to bring destruction into our lives. Satan attacks the word of God so that he can lead us away from the God of the word. Now, obviously, these attacks are common in our culture. We see them every day. Outside the church, we see them inside the church. We see them by any number of people we know. Probably all of us know people who embrace one or more or all of those attacks and say, that's, yeah, that's the way it is. 
But we who have come out on a cold November day, how do we keep from being deceived by these lies and thus destroyed by the enemy? Well, I'll go quickly because time's running out. First, we must embrace the authority of God's word. We'll talk more about the authority of God's word in two weeks. But for today, realize that one of the fundamental truths of God's word is that it is inspired by God. Second Timothy 3.16. What we have here, we see it in this text. It wasn't Adam's idea. Adam didn't say, I think that tree's probably off limits. I bet God said, I bet God, if, I bet God's saying that tree's off limits. It wasn't that. He had the actual word of God saying that tree is off limits. And that gave it the authority of God himself. What we have in God's word in, in the Bible are the inspired words of almighty God. God moved on people to write down what he wanted written down. First Peter, second Peter one twenty and twenty one assures us no biblical author just determined to write down what they wanted to write down, but they were moved. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we have is what God wanted us to have. The accuracy and authority of God's word. It's not based upon the intelligence of Moses or the knowledge of Paul. It is based upon the God who inspired the writing. The accuracy of what we have is based upon the character and the nature of Almighty God. Again, we see this in our passage. It was God who said, God had literally said, do not eat of this tree. They had God's actual words to them about what they were to do and what they were not to do. Had they just embraced the authority of God's word. When the enemy said, has God said, they would have said yes and shut your mouth. And they would have walked away. But because not embracing God's word, they listened to his lies and they were convinced of his lies. How different would the world be? Who knows? To keep from being deceived and destroyed by Satan's attacks on God's word, we must embrace the authority of God's word. This is the word of God. And what it says I will do and what it says I will not do. Secondly, we must study God's word. One of the interesting things about this story is, is how Eve responds to Satan's attack. Has God really said you shall not eat? The woman said to the serpent from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the tree which the tree of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. That's interesting because God didn't actually say anything about touching it. And I can't say for sure why she added that part. Could have been because she was starting to doubt and thought by making the command stronger and tighter, it would give her a greater confidence. It may have been she wasn't totally sure about what God had said. And so by adding to God's word, it was purely accidental. But but either way, she added to what wasn't actually there. So what I always take from this when I when I read through Genesis, is how important it is for us to actually know what God's word really says. I've seen many disciples of Jesus, legitimate, born again disciples of Jesus, tripped up in discussions, mainly on the Internet, because they post what they think God's word says and they're wrong. Nine times out of ten this happens because they don't study God's word for themselves. They, they heard a preacher Granny told them something. They saw a talking head on TV say something. But they themselves have never cracked open the Bible and spent time learning it and seeing what it actually says. So I believe we ought to come to Sunday school. I believe we ought to come to church for the preaching. I believe we ought to come on Wednesday night. I believe if we're having church and the Bible's being taught, we ought to be here. I do. But none of that can replace your own personal time in God's word. It is not enough for for me to study God's word and tell you what it means. I might be wrong. Stranger things have happened. We must study God's word ourselves. A disciple of Jesus who does not study God's word does not know God's word. 
The disciple of Jesus who does not know God's word will be easily deceived by Satan saying something that sounds like God's word or is a blatant misuse of God's word. Remember in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus. Now, the quote he used didn't mean what he was taking it to mean, but he still used God's word. Satan can quote God's word. How are we going to know if he's quoting it wrong if we don't know it ourselves? I've always heard the most dangerous lie is the one that has a measure of truth to it. For instance, does God's word say love is extremely important? Clearly it does. God's word is clear. The two most important things we can do in life is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Jesus said the identifying characteristic of his disciples would be that we love others as he has loved us. So the importance of love is true. It's the application that's wrong. Love does not mean unconditional acceptance. Love does not mean unconditional affirmation. In in fact, in many cases, unconditional affirmation and acceptance is the most unloving thing we can do. There is nothing loving about accepting or affirming a lifestyle that leads to eternal destruction. Look at what God's word says. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or foolish talk or vulgar jokes, which are not fitting. But rather giving of thanks for this, you know, with certainty. No sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, which amounts to idolater, (coughs) has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. That's strong words right there. Those things should never be mentioned among us as disciples of Jesus. Not one Christian should ever have any of that stuff be a part of their life. And it says if they do, they're really not saved or heaven is not their ultimate home. Isn't that what it says? They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Now, knowing how common those sins are and knowing that when people begin to say, well, are you sure that's what God said? Or, or no, that can't be right. Well, God is keeping you from something good. Paul adds to it and he says, see that no one deceives you with empty words. What are the empty words? Are you sure God said that? No, that's not wrong. That's just trying to make your life, keep you from enjoying your life. Those are the empty words. Because these things, what things? All the stuff he mentioned in the first part. The wrath of of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers of them. So, so that's not God. God's word doesn't say those things are not best. That doesn't say God's word doesn't say if they do those things, they'll go to heaven, but they won't get any rewards. It doesn't say they'll go to heaven and they'll live in the suburbs. It says they have no part in the kingdom of God. And the wrath of God, which always refers to judgment, will come upon them. Now, the wrath of God never comes upon born-again disciples of Christ. It comes upon the unbelievers and the lost. Saved people never experience the wrath of God. The lost do. The unbelievers do. So if somebody in my life is living in one of those ways, and I affirm them in it, yes, I think you should just follow your heart and you should be happy. As long as you're happy, I'm sure God is happy. I am affirming them in a way that leads to their judgment and them going to hell for all of eternity. Is that loving? When I know the truth? Is it loving for me to tell them they're okay when I know it's leading them to hell? Of course it's not. I mean, and I use this illustration a lot and it's kind of an over-the-top silly one. But if my, if I had an infant or a toddler daughter who wanted to drink bleach, and I said, well, as long as drinking bleach makes you happy, I think you should go for it. I would go to jail. Nobody would think that's a loving parent who just didn't want to upset their child. They would think an evil, evil man let his daughter drink bleach that killed them. 
In the same way, if I know that's true and I believe that's true and I affirm somebody in something that sends them to hell, it is just as evil and just as wrong and just as unloving. But we can't stand for what God's word says if we don't know what God's word says. We won't be able to refute the arguments that sound right if we don't know God's word for ourselves. We must study God's word. We must spend time in God's word. We must ensure our beliefs come from God's word. To keep from being deceived and destroyed by Satan's attacks on God's word, we must study it for ourselves. And then finally, we must surrender to God's ways as best. As I mentioned, possibly Satan's greatest victory came when he convinced his people that God's word is a burden. Once Eve began to believe that lie, she noticed how good, how good the forbidden tree was. I bet it would taste good. It's good for food. It looks good. It's a delight to the eyes. And it would benefit my life. It's desirable to make one wise. I wonder if she thought something like, how could God keep something this good from us? Why would God keep something this good from us? Well, once Eve was convinced God was keeping her from something good, she took it and ate and then she gave to her husband. She spread the wealth around. And if we aren't convinced God's way is best, we'll do the very same thing. We know sin is pleasurable. Hebrews 11.25 is clear. There is a temporary pleasure to sin. If sin wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. But the pleasure of sin is, is passing. And in comparison to what God offers us, it, it's, it's nothing. Psalm 16 tells us that with God there is the fullness of joy. And there are pleasures Forevermore. Sin offers us momentary happiness. And God offers us the fullness of joy. Sin offers us a temporary pleasure. And God offers us pleasures forevermore. One of these is a significantly better deal than the other. Sin always over promises and under delivers. Sin cannot give us all the happiness, pleasure, and freedom it offers. And, and you, like me, you know that's true. You know it from your own life. How many times have you taken the bait and you believed it was best and you did it and eventually you realized it is passing. You had missed out. You had lost out. And what it was offering you was junk. We have all have those kind of regrets in our life. And yet we fool ourselves into thinking this time it'll be different. This time it'll really fulfill what it promises us. But it won't. God's word is clear. Sin always brings slavery, not freedom. Sin eventually brings pain. And not pleasure. Sin eventually brings misery. And not happiness. So we must surrender to God's way is the best way. I, I use the word surrender on purpose because we aren't always going to want to accept God's way is the best way. And that's where surrender or submission comes in. Because it's not surrender or submission until we don't want to do it. It's in the moment of wanting to give in to the temptation that we surrender. Say, I, I know God's way is best. I'm going to believe that and hold to it. In the moment of temptation, we surrender to God's way, trusting that what God offers us is better than what sin is offering us. We must surrender to God's way, trusting that what God gives really is the fullness of joy and the pleasures forevermore. And whatever we're about to taste of cannot possibly compete. The rest of the passage, it details some of their consequences. 
for not surrendering to God's way is the best way. They experienced shame, which wasn't a part of God's original plan for their lives. They experienced separation from God, which was not a part of God's plan for their lives. They had to leave the garden, which was not a part of God's plan for their lives. I wonder how many times in the coming years did they wish they could go back to this moment and do things over? How many times did they wish they could go back and just embrace the authority of God's word? Surrender to God's way is best instead of trying to do their own thing. Giving into the world's way always has consequences. There's always shame. There's always separation in our relationship with God. It'll often make our lives harder than God intends for them to be. And it'll always cause us to miss out on God's best for our lives. To keep from being deceived and destroyed by Satan's attacks on God's word, we must surrender to God's way as best. Believe it. Satan would love nothing more than to deceive and destroy each and every one of us. And he knows if he can undermine our confidence in God's word, he will lead us away from God himself. To win this battle, we must have an unwavering commitment to God's word. Settle in your mind that you embrace the authority of God's word, no matter what culture says, no matter what granny taught you, no matter what the talking heads on TV say. Determine to study God's word every day. Make it a part of your life. And even when it's hard, And even when it seems like otherwise is the case, believe, embrace the idea God's way is best. Let's stand with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. One of the great things about God is Adam and Eve have... They have so much. Everything they have has been a gift from God. All of their needs are met. Their communion with God is something we can only imagine. They intentionally disobey God. Choose their own way over His way. Try to make their own covering for their own sins. When God comes, they they try to hide from Him. Where God could have left them in that state could have killed them. He could have done any number of things that would have just been just but awful. He didn't do those things. He didn't wait on them to come to him and say they were sorry. He, He went to them. He called to them. And he did call them on the carpet and there were consequences for their actions, but he forgave them. He covered their sin. He took away their shame. And he made them a promise that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head and would set right everything that went wrong. Jesus is the promised descendant of the woman who crushed the serpent's head on the cross. He proved that he had crushed the serpent's head by rising from the dead. And today he calls us to come to him despite our sin calls us to come to Him and find rest for our souls despite our rebellion. He calls us to come to Him and quit trying to cover our sin, quit trying to make it all right and just let Him take care of our sin. This call is something we must all answer on our own. We answer through repentance and faith. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. And in repentance, we recognize God is right and we're wrong. God is right about what he says in his word. God is right about his way is best. God is right about the deadly danger of sin. God is right and we are wrong. And this change of mind leads us to turn from where we're wrong and embrace what God says is right. We do this believing on Jesus as the only hope for our salvation. We believe Jesus died on the cross for all the ways we have been wrong and all the times we acted wrong. And we believe that Jesus' death for our wrongs is the only way we can be righteous. We can be 
okay in the sight of God. Part of believing really is just stopping trying to be better because we know we can't be better. Only Jesus can make us better. So today Jesus calls, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. He offers rest for your souls. Does your soul need rest today? If so, Jesus is calling. You must answer. I'm going to pray. We'll, off, we'll let the altar, open the altar for anybody who wants to come forward for any reason. If you need to come forward and confess your sin and embrace Jesus as Savior, this is the time. If you need to come forward and recommit your life to Jesus and embracing His Word is right and His way is best, this is the time. If you have a loved one that's straying and you need to call out to God to turn them back to the right way, this is the time. Oh, Father, we love You today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, Lord. Satan's lies are everywhere. We all know people who've embraced them, Lord. And maybe some of us have embraced them in one way or another as well. Deliver us from that today. Let us repent. Recognize you're right and we're wrong. Give us opportunities to talk to those that we love who are embracing the devil's lies and let us tell them the truth of your word. My heart aches. The number of people I know who are being destroyed by these lies right now. I want to cry out no more. No more. No more in my family. No more in our church. No more in our community. Let us be a people who stand on your word and are a people of the book so that we're not deceived and we can be of help to others who are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.